0: Well, good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. And as Craig said, he'd like to maybe be up and teaching the kids. And I'll give you the same reminder that I gave them, which is hands to yourselves during during the sermon. Now, happy Fourth of July. Thanks for spending some of it here with us this morning. Uh, we're going to spend our time today in the Old Testament book of Ezra. And that might seem like kind of a rough transition because Ezra seems to have Little to nothing to do with liberty, freedom, independence, the American Revolution, summer, fireworks, or as Craig mentioned, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Quite frankly, it has nothing to do with any of those things. However, if you've been in our church for any length of time, you know that we like to use holiday weekends like this one for miscellaneous one-off sermons covering books of the Bible or practical topics that you might not gravitate toward on your own. And that's because we're convinced that these somewhat obscure, often ignored portions of Scripture are just as inspired, just as authoritative, just as helpful as any other part of God's Word. They're helpful for us to understand. And they're relevant to our lives as believers in Jesus if we're willing to look at them. And willing to think about them. And that includes the book of Ezra. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Feel free to follow along in the Bibles here. If you didn't bring one, take it home if you don't have one. Follow along if you're live streaming as well. And if you're curious, Ezra is about halfway through the Old Testament, right before you get to the Psalms. So flip over to the book of Ezra, but before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to read your word. Not just the classics, the hits that we're used to, that we're familiar with, but the parts of your word that we might not always go to, on our own. Thank you for this really never-ending treasure that is your word, Uh, that the more we read it, the more we know it, uh, the more we value it, and the more we want to know it better. So, Lord, thank you for your word. But thank you not just for your word in terms of its own greatness in and of itself, but remind us that your word points us to you. That's the best thing about your word. It's where you reveal yourself to us. Uh, It's how we come to know you, who you are, what you've done. It's how we come to know your gospel. And Lord, we thank you for your gospel that brings us together today. Be with us as we see how this portion of your word, uh, even in a roundabout, indirect way, points us to your son, Jesus. So thank you for this time together. Thank you for these people in this place. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our story begins around 539 B.C. For about 50 years, God's chosen people of Israel, namely those from the southern kingdom of Judah, have been in exile. God's chosen city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. God's holy temple was ransacked and burned. God's people were taken from their homes to Babylon and forcibly assimilated into a culture that was not their own. This exile was a material, political, spiritual, and societal disaster. But then after a while, as these things tend to happen, Babylon was overrun by Persia. You can read about some of this in the book of Daniel. Now, God had sent prophets to tell his people that exile was coming. The prophets warned that God would judge the people for their sin, namely idolatry. The prophets predicted that God would remove his people from the promised land he once gave them. It was a lot of bad news. But thankfully, the prophets also saw further ahead. They also spoke of a light at the end of the exile tunnel, how one day God would deliver his people from their captors and bring them back home. Now, out of all the prophets, a man named Jeremiah may have spoken most clearly and consistently about all of this. Jeremiah outlines how long the exile would last, 70 years. Now, 70 years is a long time, but it's not forever. And in the often abused Jeremiah 29, the prophet famously announces that God's people still have a hope and a future. And around 539 B.C., only about 50 years after the exile began, that hope and future begin to come into view. So we read in Ezra chapter one, starting in verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. "...has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." Cyrus probably doesn't realize that God is not just in Jerusalem. But we'll give him a break. Verse 4. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So God begins his grand work of deliverance through... Of all people, Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia. The Persians were known to be very accommodating to those of different faiths within their empire, unlike the Babylonians before them. The Persians were much more tolerant of their subjects, worshiping their own gods and following their own religious customs, mainly for the sake of keeping the peace. They figured that if you give people a little bit of freedom, give them a little bit of leash to do what they want to do, they're less likely to rise up against you and cause problems. But this massive development in Ezra chapter one, Cyrus allowing, encouraging, helping the Jews return home to rebuild the temple. This is not simply a matter of Persian political policy. This is a work of God's sovereignty. We see in these verses that this is a fulfillment of the Lord's word. The Lord stirred up Cyrus's spirit to accomplish the Lord's ends. And if you don't believe that God is really the one working through Cyrus, just consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. Some 200 years before the events of Ezra 1, mind you. In those passages, God calls Cyrus. By name. His anointed. His shepherd. Who will help rebuild the house of Jerusalem. Before Cyrus ever takes the throne. Before Cyrus is a twinkle in his mother's eye, God promises that one day a man named Cyrus will be instrumental in the rebuilding of his temple. God is sovereign over these events, and he is directing these people. So with Cyrus's blessing, the Israelites head home to start construction. A man named Jerubbabel was the head honcho. Another man named Shesh Bazar plays a role, too. They take all the goods that have been stolen from the temple, or almost all of them. The Ark of the Covenant was lost in the shuffle, and Indiana Jones still hasn't found it. And they make their way toward Jerusalem. Altogether, it's a merry band of about 50,000 people on this road trip. The first thing they rebuild is the altar. The word altar can be translated as place of slaughter. That's where the Israelites would offer their sacrifices. Everyone back then knew that they were sinners. And that atonement for sin could only be made by blood. Only through blood could sins be washed away. So after all this time away, the people's first priority as they go to rebuild their city, rebuild their temple, rebuild their lives. Priority number one is getting right with God. Once that's done, the big project, the temple, truly begins. The temple represented God's presence with his people on earth. Even when they were wandering in the wilderness outside of Egypt, they at least had the tabernacle. That was a sort of portable interim temple. But for some 50 years now, they've had nothing like that. So not only did the people know they needed to get right with God right away, they needed a sacrifice for their sins. They also knew that they needed God's presence. Now, of course, the temple project would not come without hiccups. Adversaries tried to stop the work, and sometimes they succeeded. But with the encouragement of prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, men who have their own Old Testament books, it's always interesting to see how these people overlap These people exist at the same time. They work within each other's writings. With their encouragement over the span of three kings and some 20 more years of work, the temple is finally completed in 516 BC. And if you do your math, that's right at 70 years from the exile's beginning. Just like Jeremiah had said. Now, it wasn't as impressive as the original temple. Some of the older people even wept when they saw the foundation laid. But at the end of the day, that temple is a sign that God kept his promise. That God had not forgotten about them. A hope and a future is rising from that rubble. And that's why they sing in Ezra 311. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So just like that, you've got a basic understanding of over half the book of Ezra. There is always value. There is intrinsic value in knowing your Bible better. However, you may be wondering, and you can't be blamed for asking... How does this apply to your everyday life? And while we're at it, where is Ezra? This book is named after him, but he doesn't make a single appearance in the first six chapters. What's the deal with that? Well, if you fast forward about 60 years from when the temple is finished, you find yourself in roughly 458 B.C. You find yourself in Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We read there. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, not the 300 guy, different kings of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab. Son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God. Was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra is a priest, priest with a pedigree to prove it. That's why you have that long list of names. Ezra can trace himself back to Aaron, the original priest of Israel. But on top of that, Ezra is a man of God, second Moses. Ezra is the living embodiment of the man of Psalm 1. The man who meditates on God's law day and night. And is like a tree planted by streams of water. But the most important thing about Ezra, is what was repeated two times in those verses we just read. The good hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. That's more important than Ezra's resume. His task is simple. He's been sent to teach God's people God's word. His name means the Lord has helped. And that's exactly what Ezra does. He teaches, he helps, he restores the priesthood, resumes the appropriate sacrifices and offerings on that nice new altar. Ezra repents of sin, both on his own and with the people. The primary sin that Ezra brings to light is the sin of intermarriage. Now, it's important to note that the problem of intermarriage in the Old Testament is not about the mixing of races. It's about the mixing of faiths. Intermarriage really only becomes a problem when a non-Israelite spouse leads an Israelite spouse into the sin of worshiping other gods. In short, the Old Testament's words about intermarriage have far less to say to us about interracial marriage than they do about Christians marrying non-Christians. The concern was spiritual purity, not ethnic purity. These verses can and have been abused in the past. The book of Ezra ends with an incredible scene. Ezra and the men of Israel gather, shivering in the pouring down rain to publicly repent of their sin. They effectively divorce their idol-worshipping spouses, which may rub us the wrong way, and understandably so. But if that's what it took to leave behind the sin of idolatry, that's what they would do. So now you have a basic understanding of the entire book of Ezra. On top of that, you know a little bit about Ezra himself, even though he came in late. But the question remains, what does all of this mean for me? Well, be patient. It's coming. Around 445 B.C., Thirteen years after Ezra first showed up in town, a man named Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city walls. And his story is similar to the story of rebuilding the temple. You have opponents, false accusations, interruptions, but eventually the wall is done. And when those walls are finished, there's a public gathering of God's people and they need a preacher. So who better to call than our old friend Ezra? So turn to Nehemiah chapter eight, starting in verse one. Ezra, and Nehemiah at one point were one big book. You read in Nehemiah eight, verse one. And all the people gathered as one man into the square Before the water gate, that's a gate of Jerusalem, not a hotel in Washington, D.C. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Keep that in mind next time you think I'm preaching too long. From early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Machajah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akam, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, that's the last of the long names today, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So Ezra reads God's word, and the people are moved. They're convicted that Ezra had to cheer them up. There would be a time for repentance, but for now it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to rejoice over God's kindness and provision. But the repentance does come in Nehemiah chapter 9. Sadly, it's the same old sin that dominated the book of Ezra. It's a problem in the book of Nehemiah. As we can probably testify, old habits, old sins, die hard. So once again, led by Ezra, the people repent. They're reminded of their identity as God's people. And they recommit themselves to living that identity out. So here we are again. You know something about the book of Ezra and the man himself. You've even learned about the book of Nehemiah along the way. But once again, we have to ask how is this portion of Scripture practically relevant to you? Well, after all your patience, here are a few thoughts. First, God is sovereign and God is loving. He works through the pagan king Cyrus. And the godly priest Ezra. He fulfills his word to Isaiah and his promises to Jeremiah. God is sovereign, he's in control, and he's loving. He loves his people even when he disciplines us for our sin. He loves us in our moments of devastation and suffering. He loves us when the carnage comes to an end and helps us as we work to put the pieces of our lives back together. He's sovereign and he's loving every step of the way. Now, you may not think that sounds all that practical or all that relevant to your everyday life, but I would argue that if you're a Christian, there's nothing more relevant to your everyday life than knowing who God is. He's sovereign and he's loving. His steadfast love endures forever. He does not forget his people. Next, we are people of the book. It's around this time that Old Testament Jews truly became known as people of the book. The Ark of the Covenant was no longer around. The temple wasn't quite what it once was but they still had God's word. The word that Ezra taught them. We Christians are also people of the book. Like Ezra, may we too be drawn to understand, teach, and meditate upon God's word. The lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. And as a result, may we too be healthy trees... Nourished, strengthened, and bearing fruit by our proximity to God's word. May we be people of the book. On top of that, our faith is, or at least it ought to be, the very center of our existence. This could be one of the biggest challenges of applying this to our everyday lives. I'm sure there were countless things to do when the Israelites returned to Jerusalem after decades away. They had houses to furnish. They had laundry to catch up on. They probably had to replace the batteries to all of their smoke detectors all at the same time. But their faith. That was the most pressing priority. Priority. The altar and the temple were their most urgent needs. Getting right with God and being in God's presence. That was priority number one. We sometimes make lists of what's most important to us. I'm sure you've seen them before. You've probably made them. And as good Christians, we always make sure God is at the top of the list. Especially if we know someone else might see that list at some point. God goes above family. God goes above friends. God goes above country. God goes above work. He's number one. But truthfully, God does not even belong on the same sheet of paper, He is so utterly different so much more significant than anything else in all creation that to put him in the same category as those things is already selling him short. Our faith isn't just one thing we do among many. A priority that competes with other priorities. Our faith is everything. And finally, practically speaking, We can learn a great deal about repentance in the book of Ezra. Christians today often treat repentance as a dirty word. Repentance. That's fire and brimstone stuff. Grace is what really sells. Grace is what really gets butts in the seats. But here's the thing. Repentance and grace. Grace are two sides of the same coin. The first word we ever hear the adult Jesus speak in the New Testament, repent. booms God's grace. We repent because we know God is gracious. If we didn't think he was gracious, we wouldn't even bother repenting to begin with. Martin Luther's famous 99 theses began with the phrase, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. May we repent. May we leave sin behind with the confidence and the comfort of knowing that our God is gracious. So you got some Bible knowledge. You even got a little bit of practical application. But one final question. What does any of this have to do with Jesus? Well, in the same way that Ezra's late arrival in his book does not take away from his importance. Neither does Jesus' late arrival into this sermon. He's only been mentioned in passing, but this book, the book of Ezra, and this sermon very much have something to do with Jesus. One way to look at the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the Old Testament is full of sound, accurate, helpful diagnoses to the problem of mankind's sin but it looks ahead to the truly sufficient cure found in the New Testament. The Israelites were right to recognize that they needed to be right with God. But the sacrifices that they offered, the altar where they took place, and the priests who offered them were all inadequate. They were right to long for God's presence among them. But the bricks and mortar of the temple were really just a preview of what would one day come. And they were right to repent of their sin and recommit themselves to holiness time and time again. But their repeated failure proved that something was missing. To all of these good But ultimately, inadequate efforts. Getting right with God, living in God's presence, being holy as God is holy. To all of them, Jesus is the final answer. You get right with God, not through the blood of bulls and goats, offered at the altar, repeatedly by a priest who is sinful himself and will one day die himself. You get right with God through the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. The sinless son of God who offered himself on the cross as our great high priest. The one who died and lives forever. You're enabled to repent of sin. To live a holy life by the power of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives to all who believe in him. And you're reconciled to God's presence, not thanks to a temple built or rebuilt by human hands, but through the temple of Jesus' own body, the fullness of God present in human form. So is the book of Ezra good to know in terms of just plain Bible knowledge? Yeah, it is. Is it practically relevant to your everyday life? Yes, it is. Do we see Jesus here? Yes, we can. But what does the book of Ezra have to do with the 4th of July? Well, the answer to that is still absolutely, positively, unequivocally nothing. But there's good, there's wise... There's helpful application to be had in this somewhat obscure book. And even more importantly, the book of Ezra, like the rest of scripture, even if in a roundabout, indirect way, can point our eyes to Jesus. And in the big scheme of things, that's better than anything the 4th of July has to offer. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet, freedom, and fireworks are all good things. But Jesus is better. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the founding of our country. And as Joshua said, I pray that we would... Look back with gratitude on the past, but also look ahead and figure out how we as a people can be more honoring to you, can bring you more glory. And Lord, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the entirety of your word, the parts that we know and the parts that we don't. Lord, thank you that you've directed This word coming into being so that we know every page we open to, every word we read, every verse we memorize can be helpful to us, can grow us and shape us and mature us in holiness. Lord, I pray that we would take the lessons we learn from books like these, even if we have to look a little bit harder to find them and apply them to our lives for your glory. But Lord, thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. Who again, even if in a roundabout way, somehow, some way can this book. Lord, thank you for your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that we can call you our Father and worship you the way we have today. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.